0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, PSA, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in April 2018. In our first story, Chris Lemansky's planned hike from Turkey to Portugal gave him a crash course in Stray Dogs.
1: So It's the summer of 2015, and I'm going through not just a dark night of the soul, but a really a dark summer of the soul. Um, I've gone through several months of depression. I'm slowly going insane, and I just need to find a way to get out of this damn, damn depression. Uh, Eventually, one of my family members shows up at our house, and he and I start talking and chatting and riffing. And Over a few drinks, I finally open up and just say, hey, dude, how do you do this thing called life? Because I really don't want to do it anymore. And his advice to me was, you know, the usual things, like, you know, probably should like, get more sunlight, not stay up too late, get some exercise. And at some point, he brings up the idea of going for a walk. Like, you know, just get a long walk, get your head clear. And s- for some reason, that walk idea just stuck with me. And Later that night, I start Googling just long walks in Michigan, long walks in the United States. And eventually, I get involved in through hiking. And at one point, I see this website dedicated to the through hikes in Europe. And I've never heard of a through hike in Europe before, I've heard of Appalachian Trail, PCT, that kind of stuff, but in Europe, it sounds kind of interesting. Uh, one of the <laughs> through hikes I get to is called the E3. It's an uncompleted trail at this point, no one's ever walked the entire thing, and there's little to no information, and most of what you find online is all contradictory anyway. <laughs> and for some reason, this sticks in my head, like, you know, like a walk through Europe from Istanbul to Portugal could be interesting. Uh, maybe another time, another time. But for some reason, I keep this idea in my head over and over again until one night when I've been drinking probably a little bit too much, I see a really cheap flight to Istanbul for only $400, and I think, yeah, why not? Let's do it! Yeah. Wake up the next morning with a horrible hangover, a lack of $450 in my pocket, and realize I'm like, oh, crap, I have to go to Istanbul now. So in a mad rush of a few months, I start collecting gear. I you know, find things like hiking poles and a super ultralight tent that uses your hiking pole, so you don't have to use normal poles, and get water purifiers, get a satellite tracker, get like a nice little backpack, and I'm thinking, like, you know, I think I'm finally ready for this. I start doing some more research into E3, and of course, nothing's popping up, nothing's popping up, nothing's popping up, then I f- realize, like, okay, I'm going to have to try and make up this trail on my own. So I start looking at some research at some point and reach out to a few folks who've been doing hikes throughout Istanbul and Turkey, and they give me advice of saying, you know, just be careful about one thing. There are a lot of wild dogs in Turkey, and they're not just like normal wild dogs. They're stray wild dogs that have been known to tear apart a person once or twice. At this point, I ignore it and just think, ah, screw it. <laughs> I can do this, like, what's the worst a dog's gonna do? Just throw a rock at it, it'll be fine. Lucky for me, My father with his infinite wisdom decides to give me a slingshot before I leave for my trip. and He says, you know, just in case you see some wild pigs in Bulgaria or some wild bears in Romania or some wild dogs in Turkey or maybe some wild people who want to take out or get rid of a tourist, then yeah, maybe you should use a slingshot. I think, yeah, yeah, dad, okay, whatever. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm just going to go for a walk in the woods. It's fine. Before I know it, I'm now taking a flight to Istanbul, shaking heavily and just trying to realize like, oh crap, you're now spending like the next at least year of your life walking about what I thought was originally going to be 4,000 miles, it turned out to be 6,000 miles. (laughs) (laughs) Start walk, realize I arrive in Istanbul and I like get ready for my walk. And of course, at this point in time, I have no training. I'm a little overweight. My legs are thicker than hams and I start walking and my first day I'm I've been almost hit by a truck on the highway. I have been chased down by a wild dog or two. I have also met some wonderful people. And in my first day alone, I went to a little restaurant to try and ask for some cheap food. And the owner of the restaurant actually gave me an entire feast just to myself. As I start walking over and over again, I'm realizing like, okay, I'm not really in proper shape for this walk, but I keep going anyway. At this point in time, my feet have blisters. My blisters have blisters. My blisters are now form a metropolis of blisters. But I still keep going. After a few days of seeing some incredible sights, beautiful farmlands, beautiful people who offered their hospitality as well as their kindness to me, I realized what I'm doing is the best thing I've ever done in my life. And then on day four, day five, it all came down (laughs) really fast. I... uh I can remember that day really well because it was i had walked through about four or five villages at this point, just really tiny villages where everyone's extremely excited to see a foreigner coming through because who in their right mind would go walking through a tiny village in Turkey? <laughs> and each one keeps asking me like, "So what do you think of Turkey? What do you think of Turkey?" And I keep saying the same thing, "Oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's nice. L- such lovely people." And I keep walking. I keep walking, and the same thing keeps happening over and over again, where people are bringing me tea and asking the same question, "What do you think of Turkey? What do you think of Turkey? What do you think of Turkey?" What do you think of Turkey? Now. Later on in the day, I've been walking maybe about 18 miles, 20 miles, and I'm starting to get fatigued, tired, and it's starting to rain. I crawl into this one small abandoned little cafe where there's a, about maybe two or three old gentlemen smoking cigarettes, drinking, as they call it, chai. And I sit down and I ask, is there anywhere I can find food? And they say, yeah, 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 the next village is the next village. It's only five kilometers away. Only five kilometers. So I think, you know what? I can do that. It's just going to be one hour. I can do it. I can do it. So I get back up and I start walking again. At this point in the walk, I go down this very lonely road, just this empty road where no one's around just farmland and farmland and farmland and I get into this wooded forest. (laughs) At this point in time, I hear a bark. And now it's like day four, day five, I've gotten used to hearing barks. I'm used to hearing one bark and it's like, okay, it's just a stupid dog. But then I hear more barks and then I hear more barks and I turn to my right and I see somewhere between 10 and 15 dogs chasing me as fast as they can. And this is that moment where I just sit still, think, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> and that's when the dogs have circled me. For some reason, I know during my research I looked up wild dogs as a, like, just a thing to look up and thought, like, okay, pack animal, right, take care of the alpha male, right, got it. For some reason, this moment of being circled by dogs, I remembered circle bad, circle very, very bad. Don't let circle happen. So, using my two walking <laughs> sticks, I start swinging like a madman, trying to make sure that this circle doesn't form. It's <laughs> of course, the dogs are trying to form the circle. I swing, the dogs break the circle, then they form the circle, then I swing, and the dogs break away. And at this third point, I swing, I lose my walking stick. And as I mentioned, I have this super cool ultralight tent that uses your walking sticks instead of normal poles so you don't have to carry so much weight. And so without that walking stick, I have no tent. And this is only day four of an 18-month journey. (laughs) I'm not going to find a walking stick in Turkey (laughs) at this point in time. So I have a decision, like either keep trying to fight with one walking stick and abandon the walking stick or go into the forest where I lost my walking stick and pick that damn walking stick up. So using my one walking stick as a foil, I start jabbing my way through (laughs) this crowd of dogs until eventually I can get into the woods and I run over to my walking stick, put it back together and finally have it. And I notice some of the dogs are now slowly coming up to me, one by one. And that's when I remember I have a slingshot. My dad, in his infinite wisdom, gave me that slingshot. So I'm fumbling around trying to pull this slingshot out of my pocket. And I finally have it in my hands and they're shaking so bad that when I pull open the package to find some BBs, I end up dropping about 99% of every BB. And at the same time, I just keep thinking, shoot the dog, shoot the dog, shoot the dog, and finally start shooting like a machine gun over and over again in rapid fire. And now I don't condone violence against animals, but I will say when you get attacked by a pack of dogs, I think it's justified. <laughs> so <laughs> I start shooting again and again, missing every bloody time. And I remember seeing one of the dogs turn its head and just perked up when it saw a BB just whizz past, past its ear. And at this point, I managed to hit one dog right in the butt. And this dog jumps and starts running as fast as it can in the opposite direction. And finally the pack of dogs is stopped and they've stopped trying to progress towards me and they're just more confused and irritated. At this point I start sidestepping through the forest trying to get around thinking maybe if I just avoid their territory I can finally just escape to the road and then get to that damn village so I can get some damn food. At this point I start sidestepping and what feels like 30 minutes probably took only 30 seconds but eventually I had enough distance between me and the pack of dogs. And I got back on the road, and that's when four dogs start chasing me as fast as they can. And in the lead is the alpha male. And of course, with every alpha dog, they're usually the one that's covered in more cuts. They're bigger, they're fuzzier, and (laughs) they also are much meaner than anything else. And I can tell from this dog, he has just bloodlust in his eyes. He wants to tear me down as fast as he can. So now they're 30 yards away. Then 25 yards away, I'm shooting my damn slingshot as fast as I can, missing every time until eventually I hit one dog in the face. It takes off. Two other dogs stand still behind themselves, trying to just bark and bark and protect their territory. But that stupid alpha male keeps coming. And as it turns out, if you hit the alpha male first, you're fine. The rest of the dogs will leave you alone. If you don't, they'll just keep going after you. So now this dog is 20 yards away from me, then 18 yards, then 15 yards, then 13 yards, and he keeps getting closer and closer and in my mind I'm thinking, oh no, oh no, oh no, and at that point it's sort of like that adrenaline rush where everything goes into slow motion, so you have like what maybe feels like it's only five seconds, feels like five minutes, and I can see this dog going towards me and my heart is thumping so loud that I can hear it in my eardrums, and for some reason my right hand I throw my slingshot at the dog, of course miss it because I have a horrible aim, but at the same time I grab one of my walking sticks that I had holstered inside my side pocket, grab it, pick it up, and I swing. And this dog jumps and I swing and this dog jumps and I see its teeth and I swing and I hear this <laughs> and I smack that dog right in the face. And immediately in this moment of barbaric animosity, I start beating this dog with this aluminum walking stick as hard as I can. Of course, the thing is pretty flimsy so it bounces off and down. But I think I got the point across that <laughs> I did not want to get eaten by this dog. The dog eventually gets up and runs off with its tail between its legs, and I feel elated. Before, you know, a year, like, six months before, I didn't want to live anymore, and this time, I finally survived something, and I was so grateful and so happy to be alive, I just screamed. I screamed as loud as I could, and I don't know the exact words, but I believe it was something along the lines of, I am fucking Chris Lemansky, and I am a fucking king of beasts! taunting the dogs yelling come at me you motherfuckers I'll fucking tear you apart every goddamn time and the dogs keep running and I keep screaming and I look down the road and I see one lone Turkish farmer just shaking his head like what the (laughs) the hell is this guy doing (laughs) and I I put my arms up and I put them down and I give this shrug of like why why wouldn't you help me he just shakes his head and walks off and I think, okay, you know, it makes sense. Like if I saw a stupid tourist in the middle of the woods, I probably wouldn't help him if he was getting attacked by a pack of dogs. I'd just walk the other way. At this point, I finally like now have a adrenaline rushing through my bones. That I can't even feel the rain anymore and I just keep walking as fast as I can to get to this next village. My blisters don't even matter. My thighs don't matter. The chafing doesn't matter. I just want to get some bloody food and just sit down. And I finally make it to this next little village and I find a little cafe and the, guy still the owner of the cafe is still there, and he manages to serve me a pretty awful meal of baby goat head soup. But at the same time, <laughs> after eating this soup, with using the magic of Google Translate, we start chatting a little bit, and he mentions that there's an organization here that would be willing and be happy to host me for the night, because you know, they d- it's not very often you get a foreigner coming through these parts. So he brings me over to this little building, introduces me to the group, and... They all start getting really excited. They're asking me questions about why are you doing this journey? Where did you come from? How long has it taken so far? And the one question they ask is, so what do you think of Turkey? What do you think of Turkey? And thank God for the magic of Google Translate. I could finally give them an answer. And I said, you know, the (laughs) hospitality in Turkey is incomparable, but you have horrible fucking dogs. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Next, Jen Loop learns from a zoo crow that seemingly hates her that humans can learn so much from other species if we just pay attention.
2: So in August of 2015, I found myself on the beach of Alaska um, in this little town called Haines, This town is north of Juneau. Um, You have to take either a boat or a small plane to get there. And I was out there visiting my friend and later to watch her house as she left um, to kind of take over her life for a month. So every day, she would walk the beach with her dogs. Now, she had this little dirt road that you would walk down, and you would get down to this pebbly beach. This is a this is rural enough Alaska where you're also watching for bears every turn around the corner Um, you're making noise as you go but you're also watching the wildlife and she had lived there for about a year and a half um, prior to me visiting and she had developed a relationship with the local Ravens. Now this person is a very special animal person but she also pays attention to the world around her. And she had a pair of ravens that lived next to her house. And she would occasionally leave stuff out for them. And they started getting to know her. They knew that she was someone that they could maybe rely on for food, but occasionally trust to be in their proximity. And what they had started to do over the course of the summer is follow her down to the beach when she would walk her dogs. She would occasionally take little hot dog pieces with her for the dogs, but also for the ravens, and she got to know the family. Now, ravens will gather in large groups in the winter, and we're going to talk about crows in a minute, too, who are also corvids in the same family. And then in the spring, right about now, they are trying to make their little family groups. So when she first met them, when they were gathering around her house, they had three young young ravens that they had raised. So at the time that I got there in August... She knew the young ones, she could tell them apart from the adults, and we would all take walks together. Now, ravens and crows are incredibly smart. They actually can tell individuals, and they knew that I was not the person that had made friends with them. And so I was assuming that as I was entering into their world that things would be a little different in their regular routine. This first walk, we walked down to the beach, We had her big um, wolf-like dog. He's actually a white German shepherd mixed with a little Malamute and a little great Pyrenees. His name is Tor, and her army of five pugs. (laughs) And we were walking down to the beach, and the ravens were following. Now, at this point, I want to step back and talk about the first corvid I ever became acquainted with. And this was also a friend of Tracy's. This was Ace the crow that used to live at the zoo in Traverse City, Michigan, down at Clinch Park. Now, at the point that I started working at the zoo, Ace was older than I was. <laughs> I was 20 and Ace was 23, thereabouts, according to records, and Ace did not like me. So when you're thinking about the intelligence of other creatures that's hard to access and hard to understand, it's also to take it or easy to take it personally when they don't like you. Ace was known throughout town. She would live on, the the crow enclosure was outside. You could walk by it when when the zoo hours were over. People knew her as being able to talk. She had quite a few different words. One of them was hello, and one of them was a very dismissive goodbye. She would listen to me, or listen for me opening the door. As soon as she could tell it was me, it would be hello, hello, goodbye, It's really hard to mistake these cues. I don't know why she didn't like me. I might have made a bad first impression, acted too quickly, like ripped a rug out from under her when we first met, or it could have been that I wasn't Tracy, which was her preferred person. But Ace and I learned to work together. I was able to clean around her. Um, She had been injured. The reason she was at the zoo was because she had very crippled feet. She could not fly. She needed to live in captivity, and she did live most of her life there. Now, we learned to work around each other, and I learned to take care of her, but we never became friends, not the way that she and Tracy did. Um, Tracy would be able to pet her, and she'd actually make these little cooing sounds. She would also laugh like a human. She would say, ha, 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 much like she thought people probably were trying to mimic her. Now, After the zoo closed in 2007, Ace went to live with our zoo vet and she lived a wonderful life out with him. Um, He would watch sunsets on his porch holding her as she became less and less mobile He'd share a glass of wine. She wouldn't have any wine. He would have a glass of wine. (laughs) They would share a nice moment. Um, At one point after Tracy had moved to Alaska, uh, our zoo vet needed me to watch Ace or someone who knew Ace to watch her. And so this was at the twilight of her life. Ace was fading. And I had to come back into her life, this person who clearly she was not very fond of. But she was so immobile in a way and still so with it that I could tell she was going to tolerate more of me than she had before. And we actually had some really great moments. Just hanging out together, she would often tip over at this point and she would get stuck on her back and I would be able to write her without the fear of that, that beak, that few inch long beak that she would clearly usually peck at the ground every time she saw me with. So Ace and I developed this friendship over time, and Tracy was the bridge to this. Now, Ace did pass away a few months after I saw her, and then a few years later, I was up in Alaska with Tracy watching these ravens. Now, The three juvenile ravens did follow us down to the beach. But we took this walk every day and the next day one of the younger ones was missing. We were wondering about this. I was trying not to take it personally. Tracy was explaining this is also the time of year that they go and find their adolescent group where they go hang out with the younger ones before they're mated off. And I I thought about this and that made sense. But then we came across, on our loop back, on that second walk, the dead body of this bird. Now, understanding the life cycles of the world around us is something that is, is a lifetime. It takes a lifetime to try to figure out and make sense of all of this and, and really come to terms of it, er, with it in our own lives. And I kept taking this walk. So... About the fifth time, another one of the young ones was gone. Now, the native peoples up there of southeast Alaska uh, are divided into two houses, two lineages, represented by the raven and the eagle. And what was happening is there was an eagle nest very next to the beach where we were walking. And they knew this. The ravens that would follow us down to the beach knew but one of those walks after two of the young have been gone and we did find one of them i was walking with the little pugs tracy had since left and out of nowhere and we were about 50 yards from the edge of the forest the the tide goes out and these are mud flats and so when the tide goes out you can walk forever and an eagle came the closest i have ever seen swooping right in front aiming for one of the young ones and the two adults swoop off trying to get his attention i'm watching for the pugs because at this point you know you got to watch for for pugs and eagles and it was a wonderful moment it was a scary moment i knew the eagle wasn't after me to watch the family unit work together they know how to survive out there even if it does seem difficult and trying And I am grateful for the moments that I've had a glimpse of what they understand and how they work together, because these things are happening all around us all the time. Right now, the crows are out there watching you. (laughs) If you have some around your house, they probably know who you are, and they're figuring out where they're living, and they're figuring out what you're doing. And so I like to think of these moments, and I like to think of the intelligence and the um, lives that other things live that we might not always pay attention to because it's always out there and we just need to be a little more awake.
0: In the next story, when Jeff Smith goes to search for where his father's ashes were spread 40 years ago, it becomes a reflection on the inconsistencies we must deal with in the people we love.
3: Sorry, I have no animals in my story. Uh, So 40 years ago this spring, my sister, my brother and I took my dad's ashes out into a state forest in Northern Michigan and we spread them there and the leaves and the moss. And we drove away and we'd never been back. And why we never returned, I don't know. It wasn't really willful uh, avoidance. It was more the direction of things back then I was 19, my, my brother 15, my sister 20, just the three of us because my dad had no wife. And shortly after that, we all left the state. My sister to L.A., my brother to Vermont, me to Minneapolis. And nobody lived anywhere near that forest. And maybe we didn't visit because we didn't necessarily think that somebody's spirit is anchored to where the remi- remains lie. So, you know, why visit? but that would sort of stand at odds with why we chose this spot. It was a place my dad liked. We hunted there that sometimes we'd put a tent on that very spot when we hunted. And so we thought, well, maybe if it's true that you wander forever where your remains lie, then this would be a good spot. Uh, You know, an oak and pine forest spreading across miles in northern Michigan. Uh, So when I um, when I moved back to uh, Michigan after living in Minneapolis for thirteen years, I thought I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go back there. I'm gonna visit there. And I put a GPS in the car and I drove over to West Branch, the town near the woods. And I thought I'm gonna. I'm mean, gonna get the coordinates of my dad's resting spot, like l- like latitude to four decimal points, longitude to four decimal points, pinpoint my dad, you know. So I drove over there, and I got to where I remembered the state land beginning, and it all looked different, and uh, there had the forest been cut hard maybe ten years prior, or so these thick aspen stands, little saplings stood all over the place, and these lacy two tracks that we would take to our hunting spot had been turned into these big, wide, muddy gashes by oil field trucks. And, you know, I drove some of the roads, the little two tracks that I could, and looking for any kind of landmark, and and it was all just so vague and sketchy and confused, and, you know, and decades had passed, you know, and – and I finally had to admit it. I, I could not find my dad's resting spot. And I was embarrassed because the site selection was, after all, like my idea. It's where he and I hunted. And so, uh, and so in some ways, uh, this losing of my dad's place sort of fit his life because I never, really knew quite where I was going to find him even when he was alive, find him like as a, as a person. And uh, as I drove back into West Branch, I passed these big rusting crude oil storage tanks and beside them, this little yellow motel where, where we would also stay sometimes when we hunted. And one time when I was 12, we were up there hunting. We were staying in that motel, I was getting on toward bedtime. And I was watching Rod Serling's night gallery. And my dad said, uh, son, this is shortly after my parents had separated. Said, son, uh, I have to make a phone call to a lady I know. And I thought, I didn't really know what to think. Was he telling me of the new way, or maybe telling me the old way, now made visible? You know, I didn't really know. So he went and called this woman and chatted. And I kept watching TV. And he hung up to watched some more TV. And his kind of foot started bouncing, he's getting a little fidgety, and he's like, I have to make another phone call. And he went over and sat in this little chair by an end table with a phone on top of it. Picked up the receiver and he said, Son, don't ever have two girlfriends. <laughs> and he and he called his second girlfriend. So fast forward six years, I'm eighteen. It's after my dad's second divorce. I'm sitting on the deck at his house with him and his new girlfriend, drinking a beer. You could drink when you were 18 back then. And all of a sudden, the slider comes whipping open, and these two little kids come running out on the deck. And my dad gets this kind of tense look on his face and says, I'll be back. And he goes in the house, and the girlfriend looks at me and says, this is kind of interesting, huh? because she knew the kids were the children of another girlfriend. So in a little bit, my dad comes back, the kids are gone, and uh, the girlfriend goes into the house or something. My dad looks at me and says, son, don't ever have two girlfriends. (laughs) So by now you think my dad is just like another one of those guys, right? And I suppose maybe he was. But that would also make his character a little too simple. My dad ran a nonprofit for people with mental handicaps. They were for mentally handicapped people. And uh, he took it over as executive director when he was 32. And there were just 30 people there at the time. And by the time he died 10 years later at 42, he had grown it to 300 people. So I grew up thinking, my dad's one of the good people. He helps people. And so I have this lingering acceptance of kind of human complexity and inconsistency. And when I'm feeling sort of generous, I think, well, maybe my dad was just somebody that believed in polygamy and was born in the wrong part of the globe, you know? Like, <laughs> if he was an Arab sheik or an African tribal king or, or even like a regular Mormon guy in Colorado, <laughs> Colorado City, Arizona, he could have all the sister wives could have wanted he would have been celebrated for that. (laughs) Uh, One night when my dad's second marriage was breaking up I was 16 he had a fight with his wife He stayed up late into the night talking to me and he was drinking getting drunk and he's and it was kind of this smudgy alcohol smeared ramble about his first marriage and his second marriage and he said my wife is accusing me of having an affair with a lady that lives over there, and, uh, but I swear I'm not having an affair with anybody. And then he said, I don't know, maybe it's the pressure I'm feeling because he was going to court in two days uh, to try to force the government to pay for year-round funding for disabled children to educate them. And so he said he was going up against one of the most powerful men in the state, L. Brooks Patterson, to get this money, and he said, you know, our society can afford to pay, to educate these kids year round, not have them sit around all summer doing nothing. And I'm, I'm like, w- wait a minute, a policy discussion in the middle of a marriage breakup drunk? Like, <laughs> like what, so I'm trying to sort this all out and um, thinking, who's my dad? You know, is he like this drunken rambler here? Is he the guy burning through a second marriage, about to lose the fireplace and the golden retriever? Is he the last defender of disabled people everywhere? And of course, the answer is the obvious one, right? He's all the above. And you know, we like our people to be consistent, the way a maple tree is a maple tree all the way through. But so often we're like, like a bundle of random sticks picked up off the forest floor and just kind of tied together with a rope. Uh, Another scene. It was after my dad's second cancer operation. It was summer. I went up to visit him in his room. His room was filled with light. And I walked in there and I stopped because there sitting beside his bed, is a, a very attractive woman holding his hand. And there on the other side of the bed is a very attractive woman holding his hand. <laughs> like like two women at auction, each knowing they bid too high but keep bidding. <laughs> and what is, so what does a 19-year-old guy, you know, talk about in that situation? I think I talked about bike riding. <laughs> um, so one of the women said she's leaving, S- and I, I went out with her. She was a hot 28-year-old who was in horseback riding and liked to wear suede. She said, I need a beer. Will you go with me? I said, okay. So we went to a lounge nearby on Telegraph Road. It was dark, there were no windows, like blood red wallpaper and this like thick black trim, like so loungy. And, s- and we settled into a, to a booth and she said, uh, I don't wanna make it look like I'm bailing on your dad when he's sick, but like, I, I just can't handle this multiple girlfriend thing anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. And I'm like, okay, and there were a lot of guys in the bar that for some reason reminded me of my dad, like a a comb over, a nice suit, a tornado in the parking lot. (laughs) And I can't help it. I I thought, I hope they think she's with me. (laughs) So when my dad's uh, obituary ran, it was long and listed many accomplishments chairman of this charity for mentally handicapped, chairman of this other charity for mentally handicapped, lobbyist, executive director, only 42. And my my friend's mom read it and said, I can't believe how much your dad did for disabled people, how important he was. And my dad's ashes arrived in a brown plastic box shaped like something that would hold Triscuits. (laughs) And we put them up winter was coming on so we put them up in my sister's closet above the Monopoly <laughs> and the Scrabble <laughs> games. We we're going to wait till spring and it didn't really occur to me that this would bother my mom and my stepdad uh, and I didn't really realize it till March rolled around and my mom said when are you going to do something with those ashes we want them out of here and of course I didn't fully understand it then either because I was 19 and you know my dad was uh, had bought this house my dad had been married to my mom my dad was the father of all the kids in the house he had picked out the dog planted the trees picked out the furniture and he had done things to break up the family and now his ashes were up in a closet with the board games seen every time my mom put away the laundry there. So I told her we would uh, spread the ashes when the snow melts. On that day, I never did find my day of looking. I never did find my dad's resting place. Or maybe I did, and I didn't recognize it. The GPS stayed in the box. Coordinates remain unknown. So I'm going to go back. But before I do, I'm going to get on the internet and check out some satellite photos Look for like a swale I remember near the Rifle River. See if I can spot my dad from a higher vantage point. Don't ever have two girlfriends.
0: Next, Simon Joseph learns a string of lessons about mud motors when his brand new boat overturns during a duck hunt with friends.
4: All right. I was born in 1977. Uh, coincidentally, that was the same year that a young Warren Coco in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana was Founding a company called Go Devil uh, Manufacturers. This is a company that introduced the modern mud motor to North American duck hunters, of which I am one. the uh, The mud motor is unlike a lot of outboard motors that you might be familiar with. Okay, this thing is a big air cooled engine. It sits on top of the transom. It has a really long tail, long tail mud motor, um, and it's it's. Uh, big prop on the end, connected by one U joint. So essentially, if you start this motor, the prop's spinning. So if you want to go forward, you put the prop in the moat in the water. If you want to stop going forward, you don't. Um, if you've seen a documentary or maybe been, been fortunate enough to travel to Vietnam or Thailand, you'd be familiar with these things, right? It's on a narrow uh, boat going in a shallow body of water. Uh, And that was actually the inspiration for this motor that that Warren Coco was developing. But he knew something, which is it goes through water that deep. You can stick the prop right in the mud. So he developed a special prop and introduced this to us. So it gets us where we want to go. Think four-wheel drive for a boat, okay? I need about an inch of water and uh, a mud motor, and I can get there. Mud, silt, reeds, it chews it all up the Ducks want to be where you can't get, right? They don't like us necessarily because we're trying to harvest them, I think is the way (laughs) we say it. But that's where we want to be, right? So uh, it's very coincidental that he was uh, starting this company. Let's fast forward um, uh, about 32 years. October 30th, it's uh, Devil's Night, 2009. And Four of us are heading north, three of my best hunting buddies, uh, my friend Alonzo, my friend Kyle, and uh, Maisie, who is Alonzo's trusty yellow lab, uh, two years old at this time, accomplished hunter, beautiful dog, one of my favorites. We're on our way up, and we have a trailer in tow, and on that trailer is my new duck boat. You guessed it, with my new go-devil motor which I had just gotten two weeks prior. We're all very excited. We're on our way. This is our first trip with it. It's piping. We're getting across the bridge, and it's definitely piping. It's coming out of the southeast, and and uh, it's bumpy, but it, we get there about mid-afternoon and uh, pull in to our cabin uh, in Barbo, which is on the St. Mary's uh, shipping channel, right? We get the boat in the water. We're, we're in the boat. We're on our way out for a quick evening hunt, more of a scouting trip. Duck hunting is OK in the afternoon, evening, but it's really good in the morning. So we're just going to go check it out, drive the boat around, you know, that type of thing. And that's when things start to change. Um, so really quick, Manuskong Bay, St. Mary's comes out, right, comes through the shipping channel to the, the, t- the northern tip of Lake Huron. Uh, right where that happens, it opens up into Lake Huron and there's Manuskong Bay. There's a river that comes in. It's a big flooding it's right on one of the flyways for the ducks migratory birds love it. I mean this is where you go. This is probably the best place besides Saginaw to duck hunt in the state. So we're coming across the shipping channel in my boat with a mud motor and 23 horsepower, uh, but it's not planing off, it doesn't get up out of the water, right? So we're just kind of like a barge, you know, we're going about 10 miles an hour plunking along and it's piping, you know, so there's one to two foot waves. Um, and a lot of spray. We got a little wet, but we got into the marsh. Things were okay. Um, we parked, kind of tucked ourselves in the lee of an island, right? So you always want to duck hunt with the air or to the wind to your back, right? Because the ducks want to land into the wind. Throw out a couple decoys, messed around with the mud motor to see if it would really do what it was supposed to do. It does. It does. It's awesome. <laughs> we sat there for about three hours. A couple exciting moments when we thought a seagull was a duck, but it wasn't a duck. (laughs) Um, Started picking up, uh, got everything gathered up, decoys, you know, gearhead. Duck hunting, gearhead, great sport, right? We've got a lot of gear, Uh, which when you're in a boat with three guys and a dog and it's 16 feet long with a mud motor, weighs it down a little bit. More on that later. We didn't know something while we hunted in the lee of this island. The storm had built a little bit more, they shut the bridge down. Um, Instead of, you know, 20 to 30, it's now 30 to 40, gusts to 50. The one to twos that we came across in are now two to fours. They're coming a little bit different angle, right? We had, we didn't know that. This was flip phone time, right? And uh, so we pack up, and it's dark. It's, it's devil's night. It's dark. You know, you hunt until dusk. So we pack everything up. My duck boat has these really great lights on the front. They're big KC lights. Flip them on. Holy crap, you can see out 25 feet. We have a GPS. We have a path. We're on our way. We come around the corner of the island, um, and I don't know if I took a, a, a little severe corner or what, Um, But the first wave came over the bow of the boat. And it came over Kyle and it came over Alonzo and it hit me about waist high. Um, By the time the second wave was coming over the boat is now uneasy. You know, it's starting to list. It's full of water. The motor actually sits very high and it's very heavy. So all of a sudden it's very unstable. Um, Alonzo jumps up. He grabs the tiller. I went for life jackets because, of course, why would you wear a life jacket? Um, (laughs) I hear, or see, I'm not sure, a big splash, and it's Kyle jumping off the boat uh, to grab decoys. Because a big bag of decoys, first PSA, float, right? (laughs) So if this happens to you, grab the decoys. At any rate, I grab a couple life jackets. At this point, Kyle's floating away. Alonzo's turned off the motor, which is important because we don't want the prop spinning around for number of reasons. Uh, I hand him a life jacket. I've got my life jacket, and the boat is starting to to turn over. Mind you, it's dark, and mind you, the waves have not stopped. So the boat rolls over. We're on the bottom of the boat. I have a life jacket. I have the bow line that I got a hold of. Who knows how? Alonzo somehow had the forethought to grab his cell phone and hold it like this as he's clamoring to get on the, sorry, bottom of the of the boat, right? And he's holding this thing up, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and uh, you can imagine the expletives. Um, but I look over, and here's my other buddy, and he's floating away a little bit, and like we do, we jump in the water to go get our friend. Uh, so I went out, I had the bow line. It, it's reactionary. I went, and I got him. Pull us back, and uh, so because I knew that we had to stay together. We have to stay together. By the time I get back to the boat, Alonzo's on, on his phone uh, with 911. We're in the uh, boundary area where cell phones don't work very well, so that keeps cutting out. Two times it cuts out. He can't get the call through, right? The phone rings Mom, 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 no. I can't talk right, I love you, I love you. No, I I can't tell you what I'm doing. I have to go. Okay, goodbye. (laughs) The phone rings again, and I hear a very abrupt Alonzo say, no, listen, I don't know how long this is going to last. We are three men, we're in the water, Uh, we have a dog, we're in between uh, Barbo Point and Sand Island, and I've got my GPS in my pocket, and I hand it to him, and he reads off some, some coordinates. Now whether or not they were transcribed wrong or we don't know, what we do know is that phone call got off and then his phone died. Aww. And we're on the bottom of the boat, <laughs> right? So we bobbed there uh, for two hours. Water's about 40 degrees. Um, neoprene waders are very helpful in this situation. PSA number two or three. I'm not sure what, what one I'm on. Uh, but anyway, we bob around. There's some stories about uh, Poseidon, Titanic. Uh, Kyle at one point hummed the Gilligan's Island theme. <laughs> um, we all became very calm, which is interesting, right? Very calm. Uh, people that have been outdoors will understand that hypothermia, one of the ways that it sets in very fast is if you expel a bunch of energy and you, you freak out, you hyperventilate, that type of thing. So we knew better than that. So we stayed fairly calm. Um, About a half an hour in, Alonzo just says, where's Maisie? (laughs) Like, oh, my God. And so one of our friends is gone. One of our hunting buddies is gone. But, you know, we're trying to survive. So we see some flares. We see some bouncing lights. At, At one point, we see these lights. And I'm waving this. GPS that has this fancy feature where it turns a bright white, wave it. I think I'm making SOS. I'm definitely not. Um, but the lights turn off on this boat. They're search lights, and they turn off. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God. They're never going to get to us. And then I just thought, or they d- or they saw something, right? And they turned off their lights to, to see if they can see it again. So I threw the thing in the air. And they're on us, right? So this boat pulls up. It's two sheriff's deputies. Uh... uh State police, trooper, I get Alonzo in the boat, I get Kyle in the boat, and I'm standing on the bottom of my boat, holding this other boat, going, okay, if we crash together, we're all going to be in the water. Next thing I know, I'm in the air. Officer Dan Rambo, true story, (laughs) true story, officer Dan Rambo, state police uh, out of of Barbo, pulls me into the boat, and all I do is yell at him, where is the goddamn helicopter? You have to understand that Manuskong Bay is 45 minutes from Traverse City by helicopter. It's half an hour from the Sioux. What we didn't know is those coordinates got screwed up maybe, but also that was not Sand Island. That's Barbo Island, and that is not Barbo Point. These are things that Alonzo knew after years. It's just what you call them, right? So we get, so we get back. We spend a couple hours in an ambulance, Uh, get warmed up, we go to the bar for a couple hours, Um, get a lot of cross-eyed looks. You're like, guys, I did that? Listen, all we want to do is tell you that the dog is missing and we really need to find her. Uh, Saturday, we went out, we salvaged my uh, uh, boat. We flipped it over. We looked for the dog, of course. We flipped my boat over. Uh, All three of our guns popped up floating. PSA number three, if you're going to duck hunt, get a floating gun case. Um... Brought it back in, uh, went out and had dinner. Alonzo saved half of his steak just in case we found Maisie the next day. Uh, we went out another adventure, which I don't have time to tell, but uh, we went on this long adventure to get to the point where if she just went with the waves and the wind, this is where she approximately would end up. What we didn't know is Alonzo's thought was, I'm going to get there and I'm walking the marsh all the way back to Barbo and I'm going to find my dog that's a crazy idea and we pleaded with Alonzo not to not to do that but he was convinced so Kyle and I threw out a couple decoys sat down um, and ten minutes late it couldn't even been ten minutes Alonzo's on this walk and I hear his duck call I look over my shoulder and these two mallards are flying away and he's got his gun pulled but he doesn't shoot they're too far away but he blows the call again it's it's a tactic sometimes they turn around and come back Um, And they don't. However, to my left, I hear a little splashing. There's muskrat houses around, and there's things like that. But I just thought to myself, well, let's see. Maisie, get over here. Splash, 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 (laughs) splash. Maisie, come on. That little yellow lab's face came through the reeds like this. (laughs) We're in water this deep. She's holding her head above, and she comes to me. She's got her neoprene vest on. She's all chafed from spending the night in the marsh and reuniting her with Alonzo was unbelievable. It, re- it really was truly al- unbelievable. <laughs> I think I'm pretty close on time. So I'm going to wrap up really quick. We get home, do some insurance things. Uh, Alonzo had turned my motor off before we flipped, which was amazing, right? So I think to myself, maybe I can salvage this thing. So I call Go Devil Manufacturers. The lady in her thick Cajun accent listens to me and finally says, let me see if I can get cocoa. Okay. (laughs) Next thing I know, this guy with a, I mean, I can't even hardly understand what he's saying. In fact, it took me a while to figure out that oil is oil, right? (laughs) But essentially he explained to me that that motor that they use specifically disperses heat. So if this happens, uh, you can salvage it. And he tells me to go get some oil. And, uh, and fire it up, get it hot, dry it out, and it should be fine. And so I'm thanking him and getting off the phone, and he says, son, and I just, I mean, like, my back straightened. I'm on the phone with this guy. <laughs> He's like, son, I'm going to tell you something. I tell all the boys down here, that devil gets you in and out of the swamp. It doesn't get you across the ocean. Oh. I headed out to the uh, store to get some oil. oil, and that's it. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Story Elon Cameron tells us that if she learned one thing in junior high, it's that the weirdos and misfits are the ones worth knowing. <laughs>
5: By the time I'd reached sixth grade, I kind of figured out how to get by in grade school. By no means popular. I just figured out how to carve out my own little corner to be weird in, mostly by myself. Uh, I was raised as an only child. I didn't really know how to relate to peers at all. um, But I really knew how to relate to adults. This turns out to be one of the greatest gifts that no one could have ever thought to teach me, but... That's a story for another time. When I tried to talk to people my own age, it was just lonely and strange. (laughs) My friends who I made were mostly bookish and quiet, so I kind of pretended to be the same. We had sort of dorky fun and enjoyed each other, but I didn't have many social opportunities. Because if your mom and dad aren't really joiners, and in fact if your mom is some misanthropic atheist feminist in the 1970s way before that's cool... And all of your friends are, like, air quotes, normal Christian people with moms who wear double-knit polyester trousers. It turns out you might not get the most warm welcome when you go over to your friends' houses. (laughs) I was not a stranger to being disliked by children or adults. I was quite aware of it, but I had no idea how to deal with it or change it, and certainly no sense of how to manage the discomfort in the meantime. As uncomfortable as I'd been, as squirmy and sweaty and mouth-breathy as I'd ever been, (laughs) it was nothing compared to the shit tsunami that hit my life when I entered the seventh grade. I mean an inconceivably nightmarish conglomeration of events and factors aligned as a front, as if it was designed to dismantle the frail filigree of self-esteem that I'd managed to piece together myself up to this point. I really don't mean to belabor my plight or whine, but when I tell you that no one would talk to me, no one would allow me to sit with them at lunch or acknowledge my existence unless we were in a completely empty hallway with no shred of a possibility that anyone, including a teacher, would come out of a bathroom or a classroom only under those circumstances would people say hello to me. In an empty, deserted place, it was the only time one of my dearest friends to this day would even acknowledge my presence. Otherwise, he'd kind of do this weird nod and like turn away and disapproval, just to make sure that his friends knew that he knew that I was not to be to, to be touched or talked to or acknowledged. Um, I learned quickly to try to be small, to try to minimize myself or hide to avoid the inevitable insult or weird reindeer games. Um, What I mean by that is the sort of malevolent scenario where a popular girl would be like, oh my God, I love that sweater. Is it a spree? And you'd be like, no. Oh, where did you get it? You'd be like, Kmart. She'd be like, I know, and you wore it yesterday. You're so disgusting. And that's exactly the kind of entrapment that I would walk into every day of my junior high school life. In the middle, I, I hit the middle of exactly zero bullseyes when it came to boys, shoes, hair, clothes, school, extracurricular activities, or anything. <laughs> Aside from one day seeing a boy tie a popular girl's sweater arms into a knot, and that was her cheerleading outfit, so the sweater arms were actually connected to her bottoms, and she was screeching running into the girl's bathroom. I was just standing there, with this crazy look on my face because I couldn't believe that someone else was getting picked on, seemed I was the butt of every joke. The weird thing too, back in the 1980s when we had a lot less finesse about our bigotry in popular culture, kids like me were called scum or scummies. It was a broad term applied to the lower caste of Traverse City Public Schools Society I was also a bleeding heart through and through, an openly vegetarian person from the age of nine. I couldn't handle it when we would watch movies about species going extinct in science class. I would just ugly cry and hyperventilate (laughs) and look like I had been ugly crying and hyperventilated for some time afterwards. I also played violin, which for some odd reason made me the butt of a lot of jokes in my neighborhood. I don't know. I still haven't figured that one out. I was also into really weird stuff for my age. I studied archetypal mythology. um, I was obsessed with Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. I had this enormous desire to find my life's true purpose and understand my calling, but I was 12. (laughs) So totally appropriate for someone 25 and above, but it was just super uncomfortable for people my own age. I just began to hate school especially the time before classes started. Because at that set of buildings up the hill from Myers, where we would be interned for at least three years of our lives if you grew up here, you would literally spend the time before school started in one of two groups. If you were a popular kid, you traveled in packs roaming the halls, essentially acting like tiny Napoleons, taking over and harassing people wherever you could. And if you weren't in that group, you essentially tried to hide in the library or a bathroom, which is why it's so important that people not pee on bathroom seats, (laughs) or a classroom if a teacher was nice enough to let you hang out there before class, or anywhere. Because if you were subject to one of these packs of popular kids, they would literally disassemble your entire being and leave you in shreds for the rest of the day. I was really, really not good at hiding. Um, It was amazing to me also how little teachers did about bullying back then. But what it occurs to me is maybe they felt really powerless or maybe they were actually so overwhelmed by these evil doers that they were trying to impress them (laughs) themselves. Because they were truly terrifying. When all the kids in my grade were reading dirty novels, I was reading Dune. All the girls in my class were obsessed with what new fall fashion trends 17 magazine had put put forth. It was plaid. Um, (laughs) I was reading George Orwell's 1984 because I was wanted to be sure to read 1984 in 1984. I know. But really, most kids seem like they got by okay. I felt like they all had this clue. They had this secret password. They knew the handshake, and I just didn't know it. As a 44-year-old woman, I can tell you that despite the last four years of my life being consumed by parental death and incredibly grown-up, uncomfortable bullshit, I would happily do 2014 to today a couple of times before I do 1984 to 1987 again. Some people hit bottom in their 20s. They wake up in a room next to someone whose name they can't remember. They're in a dorm, a motel, some apartment. They've been on a bender for days or maybe months. They don't remember how they got here. Some behind-the-scenes music shit goes down, and they're the crazy person hollering at a grocery store security guard about aliens. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm immune to a downward spiral. We all know that my hold on sanity is a little tenuous at best. When I started writing this story, I was temporarily derailed because I was trying to tell the story how this was the same time in my life when I'd started hearing voices and getting what I currently believe to be psychic information. But at that time, I was pretty sure I was just losing my mind and that the devil was coming for my soul because my parents were atheists and they didn't prepare me for any of this stuff. So, It was possible, though, oops, that I may have bottomed out my three years in junior high school, and really pretty much from seventh grade until my senior year, when I finally told the popular kids that I didn't care what they thought anymore. And I finally didn't care anymore. But how did I get to that point? Well, I'd have the principal of my school explain that when my Sony Walkman was stolen, that I would paid for on layaway for those of you who are young or wealthy, That's a thing where you put a little bit of money down and you pay as much as you can, as quickly as you can, to get the thing that you really want. Um, The principal of my school explained to me that I just needed to learn to get along with people better. Yeah. I have thoughts for that guy. (laughs) The feeling I had in junior high was completely of being fresh meat funny, again, because I was vegetarian. <laughs> what I didn't know how to do in those years was how to not care. I had all the world's fucks to give, and I handed them out to every single person I saw every single day. Getting, stressful, getting dressed was one of the most stressful things in my life because everything you wore was under scrutiny at every moment. And I thought, maybe, just maybe, if I found that perfect outfit, they'd be nice to me. Well... There's one thing I can tell you for sure won't work when you're in junior high. When I was in grade school, my friend Aaron Hippio and I were dedicated to making the very most of every dress up day. Whenever there was backwards day, we planned for weeks what we were going to wear. I was so geeked because this one year I'd figured out how to how to fashion my dad's really big slippers so that I could wear them backwards so they looked like I had shoes on that were backwards was the best. (laughs) I even had a friend who walked to school backwards on Backwards Day. She was the coolest. (laughs) Still is. So when Freaky Friday came around in seventh grade and we were all supposed to dress crazy, Erin and I took it really seriously. Now, she and I didn't have the same class schedule or lunch periods, but we rode the same bus to school. I was only allowed to wear makeup on dress-up days, so I did heavy eyeliner. It was sort of like a Tammy Faye installation on my face. (laughs) I did doll blush, you know, like two perfectly round circles on my big cheeks, and I even did a beauty mark using my stepmother's eyeliner pencil that smelled like pencil lead and excitement. (laughs) I was wearing overalls which I had splatter painted with a bunch of colors and wrote the word crazy on the butt. (laughs) Mm-hmm and a cardigan that I'd cut off and strung with ribbons so they would hang down and flow as I walked through the halls. And this would be the moment. This would be the moment that these people would see that I had such spirit, that I was so ready to be a joiner, that I was so ready to go all the way with my outfit for Freaky Friday that they would surround me and we'd sing Aha's Take on Me together. Not so much, cowboy. I got to school with Aaron, and we were the entirety of the student body that had observed Freaky Friday in a class of over 700 kids, two of us dressed up. I cannot tell anyone else how to survive junior high. I still get nervous when I have to go to the high school or any school buildings in this town and I still get nervous when I meet new people. But I care less about that now. And I don't quite know how that happened. The best thing that I can say is, if you have to survive junior high school, find the weirdos, make friends with them. They will be loyal to you if you are a good friend. And those weirdos will be the designers and filmmakers the artists and engineers and scientists and doctors and Nobel laureates that you hear about. They're essentially the movers and shakers of the world when you grow up. do not If you don't feel popular, you're doing it right. <laughs> you know what the popular kids end up doing, and I don't mean to be backlash mean girl with this one, but I'm going to be brutally honest. They're realtors. Sorry, if anyone's a realtor, I'm sure you're a nice one. You're not one of those <laughs> awful people. They're car salespeople. <coughs> They're not all jerks, but they aren't the amazing ones. I'm not saying I am, but my friends sure are. And I say the freaky shall rise, and it will be wonderful. It turns out that if you can comfort yourself through enough hardship with the thought that these assholes will eat their hat when I'm famous, it might just happen. (laughs) We'll see. Just whatever you do, don't give up. Bottom line is I don't know how I survived junior high school. I think being a weirdo gives you special magical powers eventually. You have to survive a lot of discomfort and then you have skills that other people don't have. The greatest of which, you don't mind feeling uncomfortable. And that's a strength because my life doesn't rely on feeling okay. What I mean here is if you can handle the stress of being weird, maybe you can do anything.
0: Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in May, our last main stage show of Season 5, when our theme is Toe to Toe. Thanks for listening.